I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 6 in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please look underneath the chair you're sitting in or the one in front of you or beside you. And there should be one there if you don't have a Bible with you today. But Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 18. And I want to ask you to stand with me right now as we honor the, the Word of God and as it's being read. Matthew chapter 6, we'll read verses 1 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray together again. Father, you, you see us and you see our hearts. and, and So it is humbling to come before you. And pray, and for me to preach, knowing God that you you see all past all the masks and facades, and and you see the heart. Father, I pray today that we would be convicted, but also encouraged. And I ask God that Your Word would do this work. We would see the glory of who you are, God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So I imagine many of you are familiar with the uh, the hit movie, uh, The Greatest Showman. P.T. made it based on the, loosely I guess, on the life of P.T. Barnum, who endeavored to come up with the greatest show on earth. Any of you ever been to it? Barnum and Bailey Circus. I know I went when I was a kid in Knoxville, Tennessee and 
don't remember a whole lot about it. But the greatest show on earth. As you think about that this morning, I remind us of churches we've gathered here this morning and we've we've uh, been blessed to hear teachers teach the Word of God to us in Sunday school and hear our praise team play so well this morning that as a as First Baptist Church, we don't want to, to have the greatest show in Mount Carmel or the greatest show on earth. That is not our purpose here. Our purpose is to worship the living God. And as we think about that on a corporate level this morning, we think about Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 6. While we don't want to gather corporately to just be entertained or be part of the greatest show around, we also don't want to do that on an individual level as we leave this place. We don't want to be guilty of doing things for show that, that we say are right in the eyes of God. Well, how is it that we might be doing this? Look at your Bible in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And notice how the end of chapter 5, how at the end of chapter 5, Jesus concludes this way. With these words, these challenging words, convicting words, these impossible words. Chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he uses the word must. He doesn't, this is not a suggestion. He says you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Then in chapter 6 verse 1 he says this again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will, then you will have a reward from your Father who is in heaven. I like what D.A. Carson says about these two verses together. We're to strive to be like God, to be like our Father in heaven. We're created in His image. And as professing believers who profess to have been saved and born again, we're being renewed into the image of God, whereas we take on more and more the likeness of our Creator in how we act and how we speak and how we live. Yet we're not there yet. But as we endeavor to be more like Christ, to be Christ-like, to be like our Father in heaven, to be perfect, what are we being told in chapter 6, verse 1? We're told to be careful. So as D.A. Carson says, we're to be careful about being perfect. (laughs) Or we're to be careful about trying to be perfect. We're to be careful about doing things, acts of righteousness, as it says in verse 1. We're to be careful about how we go about doing what's right in the eyes of God. Look at verse 20 in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said this about the righteousness of some people. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a righteousness that you you might think that is acceptable to God will actually keep you out of heaven. It's a righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And what kind of righteousness is that? There's a kind of righteousness that's merely an outward righteousness. So let's define the word righteousness again. It could mean a state of being just or right. But when we talk about the righteousness of God or being right with God, we mean doing what's right in the eyes of God. Not doing what's right in our own eyes or doing what we think is right, but doing what's right in the eyes of God. The scribes and Pharisees did what was right in their own eyes 
And it was an outward righteousness. It was a kind of righteousness that impressed other people, that other people knew about. But God saw the heart. So when we think of Broadway and we think of Hollywood, what's Broadway and Hollywood's goals? Fame and fortune. To make money, of course, but also for the actors and actresses and directors and all those involved to be popular, to have a name, to get attention, in order to be seen. Look at what your Bible says in chapter 6, verse 1 again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So what's true of Broadway and what's true of Hollywood should not be true of the church, corporately or individually. We are not to be doing things to be seen by men. Look at chapter 2. Or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. So don't do the, this giving so that you may be praised by others. Then look at your Bible in verse 5 about prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. Then look at your Bible in verse 16. Are you looking at your Bible? Look at your Bible. Verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be what? Seen by others. So this whole block of verses 1 through 18 go together and remind us that Jesus is rebuking a way of living that's merely for show. The main point of this passage of Scripture is this for us this morning. This is what God would have you hear this morning and practice in your life and in my life. Be careful that the things which you do that are right in the eyes of God are not merely being done for the eyes of men. Be careful that the things which you do that are right in the eyes of God are not merely being done for the eyes of men. Now, it's good for us to do what's right in the eyes of God. Amen, church? It's good for us to fulfill the expectation. But the Father is also concerned about the motivation and why it is we do what we do. So there's three areas that's covered. I'm going to go over them briefly as an overview. Number one, when you give. Be careful when you give. And I'll come back to it probably later, but Jesus is not being comprehensive here. He's actually saying in verse 1, He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, or acts of righteousness as it says in some translations. There's three examples here of the kind of things that should be done in the eyes of God. Praying, we'll see, we'll see giving, praying and fasting. But it's not limited to that. It's anything we do that's right in the eyes of God. And there's three examples He's going to give, starting with giving in verse 5, or verse, uh, verse 2. Anything we do that's right in the eyes of God, we need to be careful that we're not doing it merely for the eyes of men. So number one, be careful when you give. When you give. In particular, he's talking about giving to those who are poor. Sound no trumpet. You don't need to go around blowing your own trumpet. Hey, everybody, look what I'm doing. Look at how generous I am. It says that they've received their reward in full. But verse 3 says, look at your Bible, verse 3, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
Well, there's a, a lot we could say about giving to the needy, and we're faced with that all the time. In Sarajevo and Bosnia, it was right after Ramadan, the holy month of Islam uh, was over. And uh, a lot, there's a lot of gypsies that live in Sarajevo, and a lot of the gypsies would come out taking advantage of Ramadan being over, hoping people would give to them. I had a lady come up to me one day wanting me to help her out, saying, please, please, she's with broken English. And, and, uh, and so I gave her a couple of Bosnian uh, Mark, I gave her a Bosnian Mark, and she's, please, please, she wanted more. I, I gave her another one. Then she followed me, almost followed me into the store I was going into. Please, please, have baby, have this. And, uh, of course, the people that lived there told us later that this, this is how the gypsies make a living. And, and it's, some of them have legitimate needs and some don't. And so we're, we're faced with those challenges. The thing is, is that when it comes to helping people out, whether it's in Evansville down there at the intersection or Greenwood meets the what whatever that highway is, you know what I'm talking about? There's usually somebody standing there wanting money, right? Wherever it is you're at or down at Princeton, down by Walmart, somebody by the corner at Burger King, you know what I'm talking about? What do you do? Well, if God puts it on your heart, you help them out, right? The thing Jesus is concerned about here, and we need to be wise when we take when we do those things, but Jesus is concerned about here is what? That we don't do it for show. That we don't pull up beside Walmart and Burger King on the corner and blow our horn and say, everybody, hey, I'm giving, I'm helping this guy out, right? Or we got where we look in our rearview mirror and we see somebody from church behind us and we think, oh, I better give, so they'll think I'm you know, a good Christian. We need to be sure that what we're doing is for the glory of God. And that's not always easy to gauge because we don't know see our own heart. So when you give, you know, let me just encourage you as a church. Uh, you are a, a generous church and a giving church. And, and uh, we had mentioned not long ago that our offerings have been down because our attendance have been down and, and so forth. And, and we've seen a gradual increase, not, not where we need to be, but a lot better. And so we, I'm thankful for that. But I hear all the time uh, people don't come and tell me names because people don't want their names to be known. I hear of people who've been generous in our church to meet certain needs that come up. And I just want to thank you for being that kind of church. We've got 23, 24 kids just from just at the junior high camp this week from our church. And then we're going to have, I, I was told, about 25 for, for the senior camp later this week. And friends from some of our church kids as well. And... Um, and a lot of them are able to go because a lot of you stepped up and just gave generously because we kind of spread the word, hey, there's this need, and, and through Sunday school classes. And people just started saying, hey, we want our kids. This is important. We want them to go. And nobody said, hey, make sure my name is known that I gave so much money to this. You know, you just give. And that's kind of a no-brainer, right? But evidently it wasn't that way in the day of Jesus. The hypocrites and Pharisees, the religious people of the day, there may have actually been a horn that was blown. When there was a need, and somebody might rush out of their store and close shop and walk down the walk down the sidewalk real quick so they could hurry and everybody could tell, hey, they're going to give to this need. This need. Well, certainly let's be careful that we don't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Not everybody needs to know what we're doing, right? Give. Now this morning, you know, we pass around the offering plate. Somebody might have saw us putting money in the offering plate. So did we sin by that? I mean, if we wanted them to see what that we were giving, then maybe so. Here's the point. Sometimes when we pray, I, Jesus talks about how, or the, Paul talks about how women, if they pray, should have their heads covered. And it's talking about public prayer. Or men, when you pray, lift up holy hands in prayer. I believe there's a place for public praying, just like I've prayed publicly this morning, right? The thing is, sometimes 
our praying is going to be public. Sometimes we're going to give and people are going to know about it, whether we're trying to let them know about it or not. You understand? The thing is, it's not in, it says in order to be seen. That's not what should be driving that. So I hope you don't get all legalistic and bent out of shape and think, well, we should never be praying publicly. Or, or if somebody says, are you fasting? We should lie about it so that otherwise we've, we've negated our fasting because somehow we've unintentionally boasted about it. So, so let's get that right. As we seek to do things that are right in the eyes of God, sometimes unavoidably people are going to know about it, but that shouldn't drive us to let people know about it. So when you give, number one. Secondly, when you pray. When you pray, when you pray, um, it says this in verse five, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So the place where you pray, Jesus is speaking about in verse five. Let's just look at verse five and six. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret rewards you. Some of you might remember we showed the Christian movie a couple years ago, The War Room. And the war room was just simply about what Jesus is talking about here, about having this place of prayer. And for the lady in the character in the movie, she actually had a closet where she had prayer, prayer list nailed up in her closet. And she went into that closet and prayed. But whether you, it's a literally a closet or it's just, or it's an easy chair at your house or it's walking in the woods. Uh, Jesus modeled it for us. He's, uh, his, his, private time in prayer should be an example to us as Christians as well, as followers of Jesus, that we should have these private times of prayer. And not, we should be the same type of people we are publicly that we are in private. And so that will come out in our prayer life a lot of times. Notice it says here, they love to pray publicly. Now I know some of you, you don't want to pray publicly. So this is not a problem maybe for you. Um, But but for some of us that are in positions where we're asked to pray publicly or leading Bible studies and somebody calls on us to pray, this should just be another uh, check in on us that, that when we pray, um, we shouldn't be praying for the attention of others or to be heard by others, but to be heard by God. Uh, Vernon Buchanan is not here anymore. They've moved him, Bonnie. I love to hear Vernon pray. Didn't you? When I heard Vernon pray, I, I felt as if... I was hearing someone talk to the living God and uh, who definitely wasn't trying to put on a show. And I feel the same way about some of you when I hear you pray. And I, So sometimes uh, allowing somebody else to pray publicly can actually be a blessing to the congregation. And it's good modeling for us and good to have these prayer meetings like we had when our team was away in Bosnia. That's a good thing. Um, but we should love to pray to God and not just love to pray to be heard by people. So the place where we pray is important. Secondly, the words that you say is important when you pray. In verse 7 through 15, you have the Lord's Prayer. And last summer, we did a long series of messages on the Lord's Prayer. And so here in one message this morning, I want to remind you what Jesus says here about praying, about using the right words. Look at verse 7, first of all. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. Empty phrases, just words you don't mean. You're not really thinking about what you're saying. Just empty phrases. Don't heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. So again, Jesus says in verse 9, pray then like this. He doesn't say pray these words. He says pray this way. So it's fine to repeat the Lord's Prayer. But don't think you have to say the Lord's Prayer every day or in some kind of unmeaningful repetition uh, 
Because it doesn't mean anything. You can say the Lord's Prayer and not be praying the right way. I hope you understand that. But pray lend like this. So here's a model prayer. So here's five aims, five targets to try to kind of hit when you're praying. And you can say these words exactly like it is in the Lord's Prayer or not, but just use this as a model. Uh, one of them is God's honor. So one of the targets of the Lord's Prayer is God's honor. Pray that God be honored. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Secondly is God's kingdom. Pray for God's kingdom to come. Pray for lost people to be saved. Thirdly, pray for God's provision. Pray for daily bread. God, give us food today and the rest of the day. and Take care of my needs and help me with this illness that I have or this, or this illness in our family. And God, with financial provision. That's just a place, a time where we pray for needs. God, pray for God's forgiveness. Pray that God would forgive you, help you to forgive other people, because He's not going to forgive you if you don't forgive other people. So asking for assistance in forgiving. Let there be a time of confession in your prayers. And then God's power. God, help me not to give in to temptation. That's how Jesus ends the Lord's Prayer. These are ways in which we can pray that will bring us into the throne room of God in a way in which we know we're praying according to His will. Here's a couple of questions D.A. Carson offers up about prayer very quickly. Do I... Do I pray more frequently and fervently when I'm alone with God than I do in public? Or do I pray more fervently when I'm in public than I do in private? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? And he says that secret prayer is really the remedy. We ought to spend a lot of time in secret prayer and that will help us. Secret prayer meaning time alone with the Lord. And that will help us with our public praying and giving and fasting for that matter. Well, the last emphasis here is when you, when you fast. When you fast. Let's look at these verses beginning with verse 15, 16 again. Verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When I was a youth pastor for about five years, about many years, several years ago, many years ago sounds like Star Wars or something, but long gone going a galaxy far, far away. But when I was a youth minister, one time we had a, we did this 24-hour famine for World Vision where the, where the youth came that wanted to, and we stayed up all night. We had a lock-in at church and for 24 hours, uh, literal 24 hours, we didn't eat anything. And also, you should have seen those kids about 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we, I had my guitar, and we started making up a song about how hungry we were and started singing about how hungry we were. And I thought later, well, did we violate what Jesus says here about fasting and about... Well, we didn't sing it for other people, though. We just sung it to one another. But the point is here is that when you fast, you're not to draw attention to yourself. So when you fast, uh, you you know... Sometimes it's awkward when you're when you're fasting, and maybe you, somebody invites you to go out to lunch with them, and you can say, you know what, today's not a good day for me. It's one way you can handle it. Or if you feel like you need to go ahead and go with them, you say, okay, yeah, I'll go with you and have a glass of water and or whatever it is you're fasting from. You know, if it's just meat or something or bread or whatever, and if they ask you, just just say, look, yeah, I'm fasting. You don't have to. You don't have to. It's okay. But the point is, you're not doing this to try to draw attention to yourself. Well. The point of the message here this morning is not to go into a, a long emphasis on what fasting is and giving and praying, although Jesus elaborates a lot on, on prayer here, but really to get at the heart of our motivations for what it is we're doing. And remember, Jesus is not seeking to be comprehensive about, He's only concerned about prayer, giving, and fasting. 
All acts of righteousness covered under verse 1. Anything we do that's right in the eyes of God should not be done for the eyes of men. So, I think about myself. When I preach, I should not be doing it for the eyes of men. I should be doing it for the eyes of God. I should not be trying to entertain you. When you dress up for church this morning, it should not be for men. It should be for God. Whatever it is we do should be for God. So who am I trying to please by my religious practices? Who am I trying to please? One of the things I want to emphasize before I go on, before I conclude here in a few minutes, is this. Expectation. I want you to notice when it says in verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 15, it says when, not if. There's an expectation that we will pray. There's an expectation that we will give to help others. There's an expectation that we will fast. Jesus just, it's, it's just assumed, it's just expected that we will endeavor and engage in these things. And so first of all, the first thing I think of in my own self is, you know, do I even have a desire to pray and to fast, to read my Bible, to do the things that's right in the eyes of God? And if not, I need to go before the Lord and pray and ask His forgiveness and ask for His aid and His help. But secondly is the motivation. Why must I be so careful about fasting and praying and giving or anything that I do that's right in the eyes of God? Well, number one is this, three things quickly. Your Father in heaven sees in secret. Your Father sees in secret. Notice in verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 16, three times the word hypocrites is used. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is an actor. A hip, it's, it's literally what this Greek word means, an actor. It is a showman. It is a showman, someone who puts on a show. So he says three times, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like actors. Don't be like showmen. Don't be like people who are trying to put on a show and impress other people. Because your father sees in secret. I know sometimes here at the church, some of our kids like to play what they call manhunt. When I was a kid, we played hide-and-seek. I think that's evolved into manhunt now. And so the kids like to go and hide in all these uh, places here in the church sometimes and, and to find a place where people can't hide them. And the question I have for you this morning, is there truly, is there truly a secret hiding place? Is there truly a place that exists that you can go that nobody else knows about? Well, there might be for a time, but it's possible anybody's going to find that place eventually. There is one place, one true secret place that nobody else can truly know about. And you know what that is? It's the human heart. Nobody else, not even, you can't even know your own heart. And when I'm talking about your heart, I'm not talking, we're not talking about the, this organ that's in your body. We're talking about the seat of emotions, your will, your affections, your desires, how you feel. What, what do you want to do? What motivates you? What, 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 what are you really thinking? What are you really feeling? That's, that's the human heart. That's that secret place that no one really ever knows about. That's the kind of the role of the psychologist, right? To try to draw out of the heart, to draw out of an individual what's, what they're really thinking, what's really causing their problems or their issues, right? It could be the role of a friend, according to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. 
but a man of understanding will draw it out. Well, the Scripture tells us that God, that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God knows the heart. Our, our Father in heaven knows the heart. Our Father in heaven sees in secret. That's what Jesus says over and over in this passage of Scripture. Your Father sees in secret. So let us both be challenged by this and convicted, but also encouraged. He sees our hypocrisy, first of all. But also, when we're not being hypocritical and when we're giving, and we're not trying to toot our horn, and we have a faithful prayer life and maybe nobody else sees it, you're exercising the act of righteousness and being and exercising restraint towards someone at work who's giving you a hard time, and nobody else sees you biting your tongue. Nobody else sees you not defending yourself like you could with your words. You hear what I'm saying? But God sees it. And God's going to reward that. God's going to reward your humility. God will reward your praying in secret. Your giving in secret. Your fasting in secret. Your labor in Awana when you're not doing it to get attention. Or your labor in vacation Bible school in the next couple of weeks. You're praying for your family. You're teaching your children at home and nobody else sees it. And maybe nobody seems to even appreciate it. But God sees it. Your Father in heaven sees this. And your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not a waste. It's not empty. You're not wasting your time when you're doing it for the right reasons in the eyes of God. God sees it and He's pleased. And number two... Your Father dwells in secret. Your Father sees in secret. And your Father dwells in secret. And two times at least, this is mentioned here. Verse 6. If you look in your Bible in verse 6, you'll notice this. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Do you notice that? That was something I was studying these verses that I haven't really caught my attention as much. But, but Jesus emphasizes here, your Father is in secret Himself. He dwells. So number two, your Father dwells in secret. We see it again in verse 17. Verse 17, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. What's that mean? Your Father is in secret. Well, that means secret perhaps to us. Because God is spirit. And this world is what He created. He's not contained by this universe. He created it. He dwells outside of it. He dwells in this place we call heaven, a sphere outside our own which we cannot fathom. He is in the secret place in that sense. Yet it is this God who lives in, who dwells in secret, who, who came to this world and He, and he took on flesh. And He dwelt among us and lived among us. And Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father who is in secret. And what do we see Jesus doing? We see Him laying His hands on, on sinners and, and, and forgiving them. This is our God who is in secret, our merciful, compassionate God. Your Father dwells in secret. And number three... Your Father rewards what is done in secret. You notice the emphasis in this passage of Scripture on reward? Over and over? The greatest showman will miss his reward. 
the greatest showman on earth is going to miss his reward. He may get a lot of people's attention or she may get a lot of people's attention and a lot of fame and popularity. They'll get a reward in that sense, but they'll not get a reward that lasts. You see that? Verse chapter 6, verse 1 again, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 2 just as an example. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So they get a reward, right? But it's an earthly reward. It's a temporal reward. It's a fading reward. It's the reward of what one commentator called, it's the reward of the fickle crowd. And people are fickle. They'll praise you one minute and run you back down the next. They'll think you're the greatest show on earth, and then they'll think you're the worst thing they ever ran into. So what in the world are we trying to do? Trying to please people anyway. It's a waste of time. It's a vain effort. And it won't last. You get your reward when you're doing it for people. But when you do it for God, the Bible says over and over here, at the end of verse 4, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. End of verse 6, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. End of verse 18, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What's He saying? He's saying that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, just like we started, right? He's saying that these things you do for the eyes of God, when other people may not see it, or they, if they do, they don't appreciate it, God sees it, and He's pleased with it, and He's going to reward it. And the amazing thing is, He's rewarding what His grace has enabled you to do. Because I couldn't do anything without the grace of God working in me. Yet He's going to reward what He's enabled me to do. Isn't that amazing? Now what's that mean? Are there going to be rewards in heaven? Are there going to be prizes handed out? Here's a gold medal for working so faithfully for so many years in vacation Bible school. Or here's the, here's the bronze star for, for the wounds you received in action or whatever it might be, the purple heart. I don't think so. I know a lot of people think that there's going to be little rewards in heaven given to people. Maybe it is. I, I, I'm just saying I don't think so. I think it's metaphorically speaking about the reward of eternal life. There's this teaching out here that says, well, as long as somebody asks Jesus in their heart, they'll go to heaven no matter what their life looks like. They just won't have any rewards in heaven. Hogwash! If you get saved, He changes your life. Your life's going to be changed, church. Progressively. You'll look more like Christ. And if Jesus supposedly comes into your heart and, and nothing changed in your life, then there's no reward for you. No reward of eternal life. So let us be warned. Perhaps there is some type of rewards in heaven in some way that we don't quite understand other than being in heaven itself. But certainly... What we need to be concerned about is if we're true followers of Jesus to begin with, 
That we're not just... See, the whole thing you hear, folks, is this. We talk to people in Bosnia. When I talked to people in Bosnia a couple of weeks ago, and I talked to Muslims. I said, because a lot of them are cultural Muslims that don't go to the synagogue but call themselves Muslims to call their father a Muslim and all this kind of stuff. And I'd say, look, you remind me of a lot of people in the church in America where people come, sometimes people come to the church and they show up and they sing songs and they give and all this stuff and they do all the religious practices but when you talk to them on an individual basis, they don't, they don't really even really want to talk about God. That they're uncomfortable talking about their relationship with God. They don't seem to ever pray privately or have a concern about people coming into the kingdom of God to be saved. And so I was trying to have this conversation in a strange way with a Muslim to say, there's cultural Christians too. Just because you run into somebody that calls himself a Christian doesn't mean they're in the kingdom of God. They may just be religious just like you are religious. Now, don't go to Islam and become a full Muslim, I would say to them. You know, turn to Jesus. But I would say that to you as well. Is you need to stop being religious. And you need to be born again. And have your affections and your heart changed so that what you do is for the glory of God. So, this God who dwells in secret, who's not contained by the universe, He creates the universe. This is the God who will reward you. The God who created you, who creates everything, will reward you. Now talk about motivation. That's a reward that is literally out of this world. Amen? It should motivate us because we love God for the glory of God to be with God forever, this reward of eternal life should motivate us to persevere in faith, not to earn it, not because we deserve it, as we sing about, because we love Him. The greatest show on earth pales in comparison to the greatest show in eternity. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, which I'll preach on tonight, says this, and I'm going to close in prayer, so listen carefully. The greatest show on earth pales with the greatest show in eternity. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. We are who were dead in sin. You were dead. Listen carefully right now. You were dead in sin. You weren't sick. Dead. Couldn't do anything about your spiritual condition. You were dead. God saved you anyway. <laughs> Woo! Glory! God saved you anyway. He did it. Rose you up. Why did He do it? Verse 7 says, So that, purpose clause there, so that in the coming ages He might show. Got it? Greatest showman, God, for His glory. That He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So the greatest show throughout eternity is the display of God's grace eternally toward me, a former dead sinner, displaying the riches of His grace. I'm a trophy of His grace forever. And that's why God's love is unending. Because the glory of God... He has attached to His grace towards His church. If He takes that grace away, He will not be glorified because He will not have kept His promises. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? I wonder this morning if you 
are religious but lost. One of the greatest fears that I have, and I heard another pastor say this recently, and I would agree, that one of the greatest fears I have as a pastor is that the sheep that are under my watch care, that there may be some that are truly that are not really sheep. That are false converts and another fear I have is that those under the care that God's given me as a pastor would be unsettled in their souls about their salvation unnecessarily. <laughs> that you would not be certain about your salvation when, because you have a tender spirit when in fact you should be encouraged. All I can do is say, be sure that you're trusting only in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Be sure to get involved in a small group Bible study where others can point out evidences of grace in your life and encourage you and strengthen you. And if you're here this morning you're not sure if you died you go to heaven, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and come go to another believer. Let them talk to you. Let me talk with you before the service is even over today. We'd love to do that. Our Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for your grace that's been shown to us as your people. Father, you see all things and you see our hearts, you see our motivations. And oh Lord, the, this Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing just utterly slays us, God. It, yet it's not something that you, you still want us to do it. You, you want us to do acts of righteousness and you want us to do it the right way. So God, give us grace to do so. Give us grace to do what we do to please you and not other people. Draw the unsaved, the lost to yourself. Make religious people born again people, saved people today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing this doxology together this morning. You come of God speaking this morning as we sing. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. 
Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.